This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the cloud-based business management software that gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. NetSuite is offering their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash WAPO. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 20th. Today, how we judge the crimes of victims in the wake of Me Too, and how high schoolers are learning about impeachment. Is it a story about her, or is it a story about how the world sees prosecution of sex trafficking victims? Or I think is it's it... a story about, like, who is the victim here? Jess Contrera is an enterprise reporter at The Washington Post. This year, she's been writing a lot about teenagers, and most recently, about teenagers and children who are victims of sex trafficking. There's this phrase that's been used forever and ever. It's child prostitute, which... Under federal law, there's no such thing as a child prostitute. A a, a child, a minor, cannot consent to being bought or sold for sex. And even though I think people know that, they still have this image in their mind of a teen girl putting herself out there. And we know from studies that black girls especially are perceived incorrectly to be older than they really are, to be more sexually mature than they really are. And if you look at what child sex trafficking is in America, those girls are it. That's what's happening. There are girls who are desperate, who are vulnerable, who are being manipulated by someone they trust. And because they hear the narrative that they're a bad kid, that what they're doing is wrong, that they could get arrested for what they're doing, they don't come forward and say, I'm being abused. Centoya Brown was one of those kids. When she was a young teenager, she became a victim of sex trafficking. When she was 16, she shot and killed a 43-year-old man who was paying to have sex with her. She maintained that it was in self-defense, but she was sentenced to life in prison. Centoya says Allen was behaving erratically and owned a number of guns and that she feared for her life when she shot him in the head and made her escape. She didn't even know when she was a kid that she had been sex trafficked. Centoya Brown's case went viral. She became a cause for celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Rihanna, LeBron James. Eventually, she was granted clemency and released from prison. The Me Too movement really brought to light talking about what it means to be a victim of sexual violence. And so there is this sort of reckoning happening across the country where people who are victims of sexual violence, people who are victims of sex trafficking, those people sometimes end up committing other crimes. And the country is in the midst of sort of rethinking well, what does that mean? And how much does it matter that they were a victim of sex trafficking in how they should be treated for committing that crime? So I started looking for stories, and then I came across Crystal's. So who is Crystal Kaiser, and why is she in jail right now? 
Crystal Kaiser is now a 19-year-old girl, and she's in jail because of something that happened when she was 16. She met this man named Randy Villar. Randy is a white man who was in his early 30s. He was living by himself in Kenosha, Wisconsin. She needed money, and a girl showed her how to post on Backpage.com, which was a website for prostitution. She posted herself there. Randy was the first person to respond, she says. And she started spending time with him on a regular basis, and he was paying her for sex. And not just paying her with money, but with cars, phones, jewelry, and something that she needed even more, which was love and attention. He had bought me this um, heart locket. Like, that made me feel special. When did he give you that? (laughs) On my 17th birthday. So one night in June of 2018, Crystal went over to Randy Villar's house. She had a gun in her purse that her boyfriend had bought her. And by the time she left the next morning, police say she had shot him in the head, lit his house on fire, and fled in his car. Fire. Um, the house is burning, I guess. The house on the corner of 78th Street and 14th Avenue is on fire. Yes. Do you see flames? Yes. Everything is now on the flames. Oh, my gosh. So she she was arrested and charged with... Arson, among other things, and first-degree intentional murder. And so right now she is awaiting trial? So right now she is in jail in Wisconsin and she's awaiting a jury trial. And if she is convicted, she will spend the rest of her life in prison. I learned how to cope with some things. Like what? Like just being away from my mom. Because I really don't like to be away from her. Mm-hmm. Like I get, I, I get this sick feeling and stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Like, I learned how to, like, cope with being without her. Mm -hmm. How does her story embody this question about how we think about victims of sex trafficking? I think so often we think about sex trafficking as something that happens around the world, that people are smuggled over borders or that, you know, the, the victims of sex trafficking are people who are chained up in a basement somewhere. But the vast majority of child sex trafficking that happens in America looks like Crystal, a vulnerable kid who gets to trusting somebody who then takes advantage of them and carefully and calculatingly manipulates them to believe that they are the one doing something wrong. He had gave me this new drug that I never heard about called acid. What was that like? Um, made me feel weird. That was the case with Crystal. And it seems like that was the case with all of the other girls that we know this man was abusing. So this wasn't just an isolated case. Crystal was just one of multiple victims of this person, Randy Villar. She didn't know it at the time, but Villar was abusing multiple underage black girls. 
The reason that police found that out was because one of those girls called 911 from his house saying he'd given her drugs and wanted to kill her. And then that girl hung up the phone and ran away. They found her wandering the streets and she just had a bra under her zip up and her eyes were all dilated. She'd taken LSD. And when they started talking to her more, they realized that she'd been living with this guy for weeks and he'd been sexually abusing her for even longer than that. And she told the police he is sexually abusing other girls too and he's filming it. And so then what did police do when they found out that this man, it it appears, was targeting many different girls? So 10 days after this girl ran from his house, police searched Randy Villar's house and they arrested him. They arrested him on charges that included child sexual assault, which is a huge charge. It's punishable in Wisconsin, 40 years in prison. And usually uh, from the sex crimes prosecutors that I've talked to, what would happen is that there would be a very high bail set for a charge like that, especially if someone was wealthy, which we know that Randy Villar had hundreds of thousands of dollars in bank accounts. And what actually happened was that the police released him on the very same day that they had arrested him. And three months went by before they even handed the case over to the district attorney And even once the district attorney had the case and had these documents that showed that he had hundreds of child porn files and uh, was making home videos of, of girls, they still didn't take him back into custody. They were still working on the case, and that's when he died. So did you... Did you ask prosecutors why they didn't charge him for some of these crimes if they were aware that this was going on? I spoke with the Kenosha County District Attorney. His name is Michael Gravely. And what he said at first was that they didn't know how old the girls were. Well, it changes what the, it changes what the crime is based on their age and their consent. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so, so you're under current statute, you're required to do that. But I guess if they're underage, they're not able to consent. Right, but in many and most of the cases, we didn't know the age. Mm, okay. So, so we literally did not know whether we had misdemeanors or felonies. Mm-hmm. Later that day, though, we went to Crystal's mom's house, and in her house was this envelope that Crystal's lawyers had mailed to her, and then the envelope had gotten mailed to her mom. And inside the envelope was the police records that— the police had been refusing to give us on their sex crimes investigation into Randy Villar. And on the documents, it says right there how old the detectives thought that those girls were. It says 13, 14. It says mid-teens. It says early teens. It says some of them might be as young as 12. And so we're there, and Crystal's mom is reading this, and she's reading it for the first time, and understandably, she starts to freak out. These is little kids, like little kids. Like, they ain't even in their teens, 12 years old. And they want to prosecute. He was getting charged with second-degree sexual assault of a child, child enticement, prostitution, use of a computer to facilitate a sex crime, child enticement, exposure of genitals, possession of child pornography. So why the f*** are we here? 
So I went back to the DA and said, I now have these documents, and they show that the detectives did believe that these girls were underage. And he basically stated that that still wasn't sufficient evidence to charge Randy Villar with all the things that they could have potentially charged him with. But in the time that they were spending getting more information, Villar was free to continue abusing these girls. And so in this time frame, when prosecutors are looking into this case, it sounds like, according to them, that they were trying to find evidence. That is when, for Crystal, she felt like she needed to take some kind of action. But what did she say about what led up to her deciding to kill this person? So she knew Randy Villar for almost two years. And about a year after they met, something happened. Crystal was arrested. The Milwaukee police say she was driving a car stolen by her brother when she fled and ran from an officer. She was arrested and she spent 55 days in jail. And then Randy Villar paid her bail. She says that after he paid her bail, he made very clear to her that he wanted to do a specific sex act that I would rather not say. And she didn't want to do it. And she said that's when he started to turn violent. I told him that I was going to stop talking to him. And he said if I did, that he was going to kill me. So for the next year, I think she was in this place between being afraid and being desperate. I mean, she was from this very poor family that just moved out of a shelter, and he was giving her tons of money. He also seemed to have this kind of control over her that at first I didn't fully understand uh, because it took a while for Crystal to tell me this. But eventually she told me that it wasn't just that Randy Villar was paying her for sex. She says he began to sell her to other people. She says that he posted advertisements on Backpage. He would drive her there. These guys would spend 30 minutes with her, pay her, and she would give the money to Villar. So when I asked her, you know, did you call anyone? Did you call the police? She said no, because... She had experiences as a child when her mom was being abused by a boyfriend of her feeling like the police didn't really help. So she never called the police when this was going on. And I asked her, why did you keep doing this? Because he was a grown-up and I wasn't, so I listened. So when things started to get violent, um, I think uh, that lasted for a while. And she says what happened was that On June 4th, 2018, she went to court for uh, the fleeing charge that she had picked up. And afterwards, her and her boyfriend were fighting. And her boyfriend had a history of hitting her. She was afraid he was going to do that again. So she texted Villar and asked him if she could come over. He sent an Uber to pick her up. And that night at his house, she says that he came over to her, sat next to her, put his hand on her, indicating that he wanted to have sex and that she told him she didn't want to do it. And he started talking about what she owed him. 
She says that she tried to get up and she tripped and fell and he got on top of her. And then she says she wiggled loose, went to her purse and grabbed the gun. So if this was a person who was a victim of sex trafficking and she was a minor and she says that that she was, it sounds like, afraid for her safety and, her, and for her life in this moment, why are prosecutors still trying to convict her of murder? The prosecutors in this case say that the evidence shows that Crystal wasn't defending herself, that she planned to murder Randy Villar. There are messages she sent to a friend on Facebook where she was telling a friend that she was going to get a new car and the car was going to be a BMW. They think that she intentionally killed him to steal his BMW. What does she say about that? She says that's definitely not true. She she gets upset and says that she took the car because um, he was going to give her a car and a laptop for her birthday. Um, and when when she talks about it, she basically she says she she didn't intend to do this. She didn't go over there with that plan. Um, and she even now says that he didn't deserve to die. She still, in a way, is protective of him, even though he was abusing her for months and years. Um, she still says he was the only friend I had. So it seems like there are two pretty radically different ways of looking at this case, right? You have one way of looking at it where this man has been killed and that prosecutors think that it was premeditated and that they are trying to convict this person of homicide, the, the person who killed him. And then you have this other way of looking at the case that is completely different, that is Basically, the the person who killed him was a victim and that prosecutors had opportunities to stop this man from hurting her and hurting other girls, and then they failed to do that. And it's hard to know how to square those two ideas. Yeah, you're getting to the heart of the thing, which is how much does it matter that she was a victim? And she's not the first victim of sex trafficking to try and defend herself and end up murdering someone. I found a bunch of cases like this through the years. And back in the 80s and 90s when these things happened, the fact that all of them were kids when it happened, but the fact that they were victimized or the fact that their person that they killed was a known pedophile, a known abuser, those things were thought you would never bring that up in court because you were disparaging the victim. Today, after Me Too, there are, those cases are being reexamined. So then do you ultimately think that the way that we view victims of, of sex trafficking has actually changed? Who's the we? <laughs> because I think in the media, maybe. I mean, if you just compare the difference in, in the way that Crystal has been written about and the local news, they're using terms like sex trafficking. When Centoya Brown was convicted, she was teenage killer, child prostitute. I think the world is coming to an understanding that children can't consent to being sold for sex, no matter what the circumstances are. And that's what the federal law says. But states haven't necessarily caught up, and prosecutors, police officers, people who are in positions of power, 
if they haven't been educated on what sex trafficking really looks like. And maybe even if they have, it doesn't mean that they are going to have a full understanding of what it means to be victimized in that way. Jess Contrera is an enterprise reporter at The Washington Post. In December, a judge in Crystal Kaiser's case rejected her lawyer's request to use what's called an affirmative defense. That defense would have enabled Crystal to argue that because her crime was the direct result of her being trafficked, she should be acquitted of the charges against her. Her lawyers are appealing this decision. Crystal's case will go before a full jury sometime next year. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. And now one more thing. Well, it's sort of a long story, um, and it starts with myself. I was in middle school when President Clinton got impeached, and I was living in Sacramento, California. And despite being all the way across the country, I remember being kind of obsessed with the news. And I started reading Newsweek all the time and reading commentary on this. And it's part of the reason I decided to become a journalist. It's very weird. (laughs) My name is Mariah Belingit, and I cover national education issues for The Washington Post. So I was really curious to know how students were processing this impeachment because the students of today are the members of Congress of tomorrow. And so the way that they process this, it's going to shape their view, but it could also shape our lives. I went to two different high schools, one Wilson High School in the District of Columbia in Northwest. Obviously, the district is a very liberal place uh, where the vast, vast majority of the voters supported Hillary Clinton. Okay, so let's remind ourselves, how does it go from a robbery to a scandal? What were they breaking into the Watergate Hotel or that specific office for? At Wilson, I observed an advanced placement government class, which was one of my favorite classes in high school. And the teacher had them do some really interesting things. She had them analyze political cartoons. She had them compare past and present impeachments. And then she basically deputized them and said, you're going to be uh, members of the Judiciary Committee. So today, you guys are going to kind of be judge and jury uh, for a lot of these cases. So let me want to remember, did the committee themselves actually break into the office? No. Who was it that broke in? Allegedly hired, right? And you're going to decide... Um, whether we should impeach these presidents. So she looked at Johnson, at Nixon, at Clinton, and at, at Trump. All right. Um, so breaking down, what's an impeachment inquiry? If we're not sure what that is. Why was it launched for President Trump specifically? Is there any evidence of partisanship? So some of you kind of Johnson was impeached. Nixon obviously was not. He resigned before he could be impeached. Clinton, we know, was impeached. And uh, Trump, we know today. And so she wanted to know 
what articles of impeachment would you bring against these presidents? And then she had them vote. Vote on them, right? So vote to move it forward. So remember, voting to impeach is just saying we believe there's enough evidence to warrant a trial. So she was empowering them. She was making them the lawmakers to make these decisions. A House member can start the impeachment process. Any member can do it. But I also went to Powhatan County outside of Richmond, Virginia, which is a county that went 70 percent for Trump. I went to another government class where I, I found a broader mix of views and opinions on this. And it does, in a way, to me, it seems like it's a very political thing that they're doing. It's, there's like only a year left in his term, so what's the point of impeaching him if there's only a year left? Because we do a lot, a lot to can happen. Exactly. You could start a war. That is true, too. We could all be dead. <laughs> because I really was interested in getting the lens from two different parts of the country, even though these places are just a couple of hours apart, politically they are diametric opposites. Inevitably, all of the discussions devolved into the present. The thing is, though, couldn't it be considered them spending all this money on these investigations as a political move? Could that be considered um, using like the taxpayer money in a political way? Sure, absolutely, right? We actually saw some somewhat tense but lively debates over the meanings of some of these terms, what is an impeachable offense, whether impeachment is inherently political or not. These students were really getting to the deep philosophical questions around impeachment. I mean, in my opinion, it should be up to us because... We're affected by it. The people that are in the House and the Senate are still getting paid the same. Do we still have a say, though? You know, these high school classrooms are one of the remaining places where people with completely differing viewpoints who have sort of a baseline respect for one another are engaging in a way that we just don't really see in many other places. So, you know, these are students that don't know each other as Democrats or Republicans or liberal and conservative. They know each other as like, oh, she's does ROTC or we played football together. So the fault lines don't fall along political lines. I think we're more prone, particularly in the Capitol, to see people as Republicans and Democrats before we see them in other terms. Mariah Balingit covers education for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Svarnovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The Post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Contributions to Post Helping Hand go directly to services run by beneficiaries Bright Beginnings and Street Village and So Others Might Eat that provide shelter, food, education, and other services to those less fortunate in the Washington, D.C. region. Learn more at posthelpinghand.com.